Hey friends, I'm Christine Chapel, and you're listening to the Hope and Help podcast from IBCD, where we host biblical conversations about life's challenging problems. In today's episode, we chat with Dr. Ian Duguid about his book, The Whole Armor of God, How Christ's Victory Strengthens Us for Spiritual Warfare. For more help on this topic, visit ibcd.org forward slash hope and help where you can access notes from today's episode and browse related resources from our digital library. Before we get started, let me introduce you to our guest. Dr. Ian Duguid is professor of Old Testament and Dean of Online Learning at Westminster Theological Seminary and pastor of Christ Presbyterian Church in Glenside, Pennsylvania. He has also served as a missionary in Liberia, taught at Westminster Seminary, California, and Grove City College, and planted churches in Pennsylvania, California, and England. Hey there, Ian. Thanks so much for joining us today. You're very welcome. I really enjoyed reading your book, The Whole Armor of God, How Christ's Victory Strengthens Us for Spiritual Warfare. I'd like for you to help us understand what is meant when you say that God gave us his own armor, armor that Jesus has already worn on our behalf all the way to the cross. Will you unpack that statement for us and explain why it's critical to understand that God has not left us to fend for ourselves in this matter? Yes. uh... When I started studying the the armor of God that Paul describes in Ephesians 6, I quickly came across many commentaries and books that seemed to think that Paul was simply inspired by the fact that he was sitting between two Roman legionaries, and so their armor was what inspired him. But as I started to look at the the passage, I realized that actually the roots of this armor are are all in the Old Testament, as Paul is so often rooted in the Old Testament. And, uh, And there, they typically describe the armor that God wears in his triumphant victory in redeeming his people. And that's important because uh, I think often we walk away with the impression that the armor of God is stuff that we need to do. Uh, The God is like a general who's safely uh, behind the lines, who hands us a bunch of equipment and says, now go get on with it by yourselves. Whereas in fact, the biblical picture is that uh, the God as the divine warrior has himself worn this armor first for us in Christ and won the victory on our behalf which is what makes the victory absolutely certain. We're not waiting to see whether we're gonna be able to stand firm well enough to see if we'll endure. Uh, Christ has already won the victory for us, and that's good news for us. Absolutely. Well, some of our listeners may be hearing the term spiritual warfare for the very first time. So before we progress in our conversation, would you offer us a biblical definition for spiritual warfare and maybe give an example or two of what that might look like in a regular day? Yeah, somebody once uh, asked me, yeah, how, how do you know if somebody is, that you're pastoring is under spiritual attack? Uh, to which my response was, well, are they breathing? <laughs> uh, if, if they're alive, they're going to be under spiritual attack. We, we have an enemy, the devil, who uh, combats us in this world, who seeks to tear down in our lives all of the things that God is, is building up to seduce us, to deceive us, to persecute us. And uh, so the Christian life is spiritual warfare. Having said that, of course, when you talk about spiritual warfare, some Christians immediately think about some fantasy novels that involve angels in hand-to-hand combat scenes, more reminiscent of Star Wars than the Bible. And so I think that's why some Christians have a hard time taking the whole idea of spiritual warfare seriously. Uh, So in my book, I want to convince people of the reality of the conflict in which we're engaged. It's not a matter that some people are called to be Christian soldiers while others of us sit on the sidelines as Christian civilians. We're all going to be soldiers. The only question is, are we going to be prepared Christian soldiers or not? 
Uh, it's like persuading people to wear their safety belts when they drive or, or cycle helmets when they go biking. If you don't think an accident could ever happen to you, then yeah, you don't feel the need to wear the safety gear. But if you realize the, the risk is real, then you put on the safety equipment, not so that you can then be paralyzed with fear that you never drive anywhere. The one who is in us by his spirit is greater than he who is in this world. So the spiritual war has ultimately already been won. Uh, yet each of us must daily engage in spiritual warfare against the evil one. You make a really great point early on in the book, warning believers against the notion that self-directed sanctification is something actually within our grasp. And I know that that is something I have struggled with in the past. You explain that we can believe that God has made his armor available to us, and now it's up to us to choose whether to use it while God appears helpless in heaven waiting to see how it all turns out. And you alluded to that earlier in the conversation. But what about this understanding is flawed, and how does this kind of thinking end up stunting our spiritual growth. Yeah, you hear people, well-meaning Christians say things like, God has no hands but our hands, he has no feet but our feet, he has no mouth but our mouth, as if God is a great quadriplegic in the sky. Mm. We're talking about the sovereign Lord of the universe here. None of us becomes a Christian without God's uh, uh, intervening power by his Holy Spirit bringing us from death to life. None of us progress as Christians without God's sanctifying power at work in us by his Spirit. And his sanctifying power is at work in us constantly. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that we leap from one bound of holiness to the next bound of holiness. God, in his sanctifying power, sometimes uh, holds us firm, enables us to stand to show that his power is sufficient to do that. Sometimes he leaves us to ourselves and lets us fall flat on our faces lovingly in order to, uh, to show us that we don't have the power to cause us to grow in our dependence upon him, in our knowledge of our need of him, and in our love for the gospel, which is good news for sinners. You know, if, if sinners is some, simply something which we used to be, then the gospel is not really such good news anymore. Mm. But if sinners is as what I know myself to be day by day, uh, somebody who is uh, constantly oriented towards sin, who unless God constantly upheld me by his strong hand, I would fall into, that makes the gospel good news. You know, my wife loves to illustrate this with reference to Barbie dolls. Um, I, I don't know if you've noticed that Barbie dolls have deformed feet. They can only uh, stand if you hold them up. I mean, the deformed feet is so they can wear high heel shoes, I guess. Right. <laughs> they, you know, they need to be held up. Yeah, and as long as you hold them up, they can stand fine. But if you uh, leave them on their own, they fall flat on their face every time. And that's a, a vivid picture of what we are in the Christian life. When God leaves us to ourselves, we will fall. And when God holds us firm, we will stand firm. And uh, either way, it will be for his glory and for our good. That is such a great picture. Thank you for sharing that illustration. And I think it's something we can all imagine and relate to. And maybe we even have a Barbie doll at home. We can go check it out in case we need a reminder. But that's that's a really great illustration. When you write about putting on the belt of truth, you point out that, quote, truth is of no value to you hanging unused in God's word. You need to put it on. You need to become adept at connecting the Bible to your life. What do you mean when you say we need to put on the belt of truth? What does that look like practically? Well, again, the belt of truth comes from the Old Testament. Uh, it's there in Isaiah 11. Uh, in Isaiah 11, God's people Israel have turned their back on the light, and they've chosen to live in darkness, uh, spurning the Lord's revelation. But the Lord has promised that he would send a messianic figure from the line of David to deliver his people. And that coming king would wear righteousness as a belt around his waist and, and faithfulness as a belt around his loins. Now, the Greek translation of the Old Testament actually uses the same Greek word, aletheia, 
for faithfulness in Isaiah 11 that Paul uses in Ephesians 6, where our English translation is translated as truth. Yet the Messianic king is going to save his people and bring in the final blessing of peace through his faithfulness. Now, getting back to, you know, what does that look like in terms of putting the, the belt of truth into practice? Jesus shows us this in his encounter with, with the evil one. You know, in Matthew 4, Jesus goes out into the wilderness to be tempted, and three times in the wilderness, Satan tempts him. These are not random temptations. They're the same temptations that Israel faced in the wilderness, that Israel failed in the wilderness. And each time, Jesus responds to Satan by quoting the Word of God. Clearly, he has God's Word memorized to the point where whenever Satan tempts him, he knows exactly how to respond out of God's Word. And after that, we're told that Satan leaves him for a season. He's demonstrated that he is able to repel Satan's assaults through using God's Word, the truth, effectively in that way. The breastplate of righteousness is another piece of armor mentioned in Ephesians 6. And now there may be those of us listening today who are constantly plagued by negative self-talk, always focusing in on our failures and our shortcomings in the Christian life. Or there may be some of us who are listening who strive really, really hard to keep step with all the rules so that we can feel proud of how well we are performing as followers of Christ. But what about the story of the prodigal son helps us to understand the contrast between between the spiritual condition of the two brothers and the desperate need that we all have for a breastplate of righteousness that is not our own. Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, some people identify with the prodigal son in the story because they've lived the wild life and uh, gone off and sown their, their oats and then finally come back to God. But uh, for myself, I, I'm, I'm clearly the elder brother in the story. I'm, I'm the one, I'm the good boy uh, mm-hmm. who stays home and does what he's told. But he ends up more lost than the prodigal son. You know, he won't come into the feast because the prodigal son is there. And and he, he says something very revealing. You know, he says, you never gave me any of these things so I can have a feast with my friends. In other words, he's just as motivated by what he thinks he can inherit from his dad. He's just willing to be socially acceptable and wait for it. But all the time, he's just waiting for dad to die so he can inherit his money. Those of us who who are more righteous in those terms, self-righteous perhaps is the right word, we're no better than other people. We're getting something out of our righteousness. We're not serving God for God. We're serving God for ourselves. And so if the breastplate is my righteousness, then then I've got a breastplate of tissue paper, right? It it will not protect me in the least. Uh, I need a breastplate of somebody else's righteousness. And of course, that's exactly what it is in the Old Testament. You know, the breastplate of righteousness and helmet of salvation both come directly from Isaiah 59, 17. You know, there is God who put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. God is, is, has promised to deliver earlier with the physical enemies of his people, especially Babylon. And now the prophet describes the divine warrior coming to deal with the far more dangerous enemy of the souls of his people, which is sin. You know, the problem in Isaiah is that God's people have no righteousness of their own. Even their best righteousness is filthy rags, according to Isaiah 64, 6. So if that's their breastplate, they got nothing. If the Lord's going to deal with his people according to their deeds, there is nothing except uh, judgment to anticipate. But the good news is that the Lord says the divine warrior is going to come not as a wrathful judge, but as their redeemer to bring about their salvation, to deliver them from their sins, which not coincidentally is why Jesus is called Jesus in Matthew 121. And what's more, often we find ourselves uh, judging ourselves and feeling like we can never measure up. Well, 
of course we can never measure up. The beauty of the breastplate of righteousness that is the righteousness of Christ is that when God looks at us, he sees us clothed in Christ's perfect righteousness. There's that beautiful picture in Zechariah 3 uh, where Joshua, the high priest, is clad in filthy garments. And he's standing there before the angel of the Lord in the judicial scene. And there's Satan standing there to accuse him. And uh, for years, I, I misread this passage. I, I, I didn't realize that the angel of the Lord rules out Satan's complaint before he even makes it. Satan does not build his case. And then the angel of the Lord uh, say, well, you know, there's a technicality here where I have to let this guy off. The Lord rules out Satan's claim ahead of time because this one is one of his chosen ones. And then, best of all, he takes off those filthy garments and he clothes him in festival garments of clean righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. When we look at ourselves and we see ourselves in our filthy garments, we're not wrong. Those garments are filthy. But in Christ, what God does is, is he takes away those filthy garments and he reclothes us in these festival garments of the righteousness of Christ. And he says, whenever I see you, I see you clothed in Christ's righteousness and you are beautiful with that beauty. When you speak about gospel boots as a part of God's armor, you explain how the good news of Jesus Christ fundamentally transforms the way we break free from many of the destructive idols we've chosen to worship. And sometimes that idol is comfort or prosperity, our health perhaps, control, success, status, etc. Regarding this, you explain that, quote, We say to our idols, so long as I have you, I have meaning and significance in my life. If I lose you, I lose everything. So where does the term gospel boots come from? And how does putting them on keep us steady when idol-related warfare is upon us? So the feet readied with the gospel of peace uh, comes from Isaiah 52.7. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. You know, Ephesians 6 and Isaiah 52 are the only passages in the Bible where you have feet and good news and peace occurring together. The good news of the gospel, first of all, is something for us to appreciate ourselves as well as something for us to appreciate with others. The boots enable us to to go far and wide with this gospel message, but often we need to take it on board for ourselves as well. It does so by challenging our idols. You know, uh, uh, often we think of idols as what primitive peoples have or ancient peoples have. But if you think about what those idols did for ancient people, yeah, when you bow down to Baal and Asherah, what they promised you was, well, kids and agricultural fruitfulness. Because if your harvest failed, you would die. And if you didn't have kids, there was no welfare, there was no social security, and so no one to take care of you when you were old and, and to carry on your name. So, so those idols promised you significance and security. We don't bow down to physical idols these days, but there are all kinds of things to which we attribute the, the power to give us uh, significance and security. It may be a career. Uh, if I'm progressing in my career, then I, I matter. I mean something. Or it could be a relationship. If I have somebody who loves me, then I, then I matter. Then I mean something. My, my life is, is, is important. Uh, or I'm safe. I have somebody who will take care of me. Uh, if I have money in the bank, then I'm safe. My money can take care of me. All of those things uh, are liars to to begin with. They can't give us what they promise, but they're substitutes. God is the one who, in the gospel, gives us the security and the significance we seek. He is the one who says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. 
he is the one who says, I have an inheritance stored up for you along with all of the saints uh, in eternity. That's the security and significance that we were built to crave and that we search for in all kinds of things, whether, whether that's eating or shopping or striving in our career or exercising, all of these things that promise us so much and yet ultimately deliver so little. I really loved a particular point you made about the peace that Jesus had while he was on earth, despite the immense amount of duties and responsibilities that were placed on his shoulders. You write, quote, no one ever had more on his to-do list than Jesus. Preach the gospel, heal the sick, train the disciples, save the world. Yet in the midst of all that busyness, he was at peace. He had time for people, time for life, and most importantly, time to spend with God. If Jesus was able to enjoy this kind of peace while in the world, is it really possible for us too as well? Yeah, as I'm listening to my own words, I'm thinking, boy, that's so far from where my typical day is, right? I'm frantically busy doing all kinds of things, good things for so many people, and yet easily getting frazzled because I forget about God. I regard myself as, as the one who has to get all these things done. Uh, God is sort of sitting off on the, on the side watching, perhaps, but not really actively involved. I think the key to Christ's peace is the fact that he understands that his father is working and uh, his father is going to accomplish all of his will. He'll accomplish it through Jesus often. But part of that will is also for Jesus to rest in his physical humanity. He needs that. Part of that is for him to waste, we might say, time sitting down with the children, you know, having the children on his lap while the disciples are saying, boy, you got more important things to do. And he's saying, no, this is, this is what my father has for me right now. Ephesians 2.10 talks about the good works that God has prepared in advance for us to walk in them which suggests there's a ton of good works out there that he's prepared for me not to walk in, for other people to walk in. And uh, so I need to get off my Messiah complex and uh, sit down and say, Lord, you've made me a human being. I don't have the power to do all this stuff, but you do. You have the power to do all of your holy will, and you'll use me to do some of those good things and help me to understand which of those good works you prepared for me when I need to sit down and take a nap, when I need to sit down and play with my kids, uh, all of those things give me the wisdom to be able to discern and to trust that you can accomplish everything you, you purpose today. When you were writing in the book about the shield of faith, you point out that, quote, to experience faith as a shield, you need to know not only that God is powerful, but that this God is your friend. Was there a recent time that you've experienced when your faith in God was a powerful shield for you, not necessarily because of some quality that you were able to muster up, but because you relied upon God as both powerful as well as personal? Well, I've uh, recently had a recurrence of prostate cancer. I had that three years ago, and I had surgery for that. And then uh, this year it's recurred, and so I've had to have radiation and uh, hormone therapy which really brings you face to face with the reality of your own mortality. Someday I'm going to die and not be here. And, uh, you know, that that's a devastating thought in one sense. But as long as I'm able to lean into the reality of God as my loving father and to remember that God is sovereign over cancer as well as everything else. You know, uh, James Boyce, when he was dying of cancer, said to his congregation, you can pray for me to be healed, absolutely, uh, if that's God's will. But just remember when you're praying that, that the God who could heal me instantly now is also the God who allowed that first cancer molecule to multiply. That, too, is under his sovereign care. And uh, to the extent that I can, I can hold on to that and uh, remember that God is sovereign, 
over the bad things as well as the good things. Uh, and he's going to work those things together to shape in me the likeness of Christ. And the likeness of Christ is the likeness of a, of a suffering Savior. Uh, and so that likeness is often going to be formed in suffering. But suffering that's not fruitless, that's not meaningless, suffering that, uh, that enables me to grow in my knowledge of God and the gospel and my dependence upon him. And that even when I blow it and I suffer badly and I don't trust him and I'm screaming inside, the gospel's still true. I'm like that two-year-old who's you know, screaming at their parents, Mommy, you don't care about me. And all the time, Mom has her held safely in her lap, and she's not going anywhere. Well, I'm really sorry to hear that development, and I just thank you for being vulnerable and transparent and sharing that just so that we can see you know, how, how this is affecting your life, how you are experiencing God as both powerful and personal. The Helmet of Salvation is another piece of Christian armor that you help us to better understand in the book. You explain that this particular piece of armor is better described as the hope of salvation, and you observe that, quote, in the Bible, hope is never a vague optimism that everything is going to work out in the end. Rather, hope is a settled conviction about where one will spend eternity. So if there's someone listening today who is walking through a really difficult season or perhaps even a sudden unexpected tragedy, Tragedy, how might this helmet of salvation offer protection on the spiritual battlefield? Yeah, so First Thessalonians 5 Paul, is where Paul calls it the, the helmet of the hope of salvation. The early Christians were known for their hope. Peter tells us that we should always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that is within us, which is not just this vague feeling that somehow things will turn out well. It's this confidence that the sovereign God who created the universe has chosen us to be his in Christ, and, and he's given us to his Son, and none of those the Father has given to the Son will be lost. That's the largest story in which our present suffering fits. Paul says in Acts 14, we must through much tribulation enter the kingdom of God. That's the standard pattern for Christians, is suffering now, glory later, because it was the pattern for our Savior. He is the, the one who has pioneered that route. As long as we keep our eyes on the goal, that really encourages us in the meantime. You know, I, I grew up in a family uh, that enjoyed hill walking. At least my father enjoyed hill walking. And so I have memories uh, as the youngest child of these enormously long route marches that were suitable for training you know, special forces, Marines. The fact that these would have an end was really essential to keeping going. You know, that at the end of the day, we'd go back and we'd have a fire and sit down and, uh, and have a good meal. The immediacy was not pleasant, but the confidence that it was an end, uh, and a good end, was real important. Same is true of going to the dentist. I mean, imagine if you went to the dentist, not knowing if how how it would all end up. You know, am I going to be in that chair being drilled forever? Mm. <laughs> that I, that I, you know, you'd shoot yourself if you mm -hmm. thought that was the reality. But as long as you can say to yourself, okay, th this is going to end. Uh, I'm going to walk out of here. I, you know, I have a certain level of trust in my dentist that they're not doing this just for fun. Uh, this is for my good. And at the end of 30 minutes, an hour, uh, I'm going to walk out of here. And the end result is a good one. That hope is, is critical to how we experience the present. And as Christians, we have this hope of a glorious uh, inheritance stored up for us in Christ by a loving Heavenly Father who is currently taking us through difficult things for our good and for His glory and in order to prepare us for that inheritance He has for us. 
Well, I gotta thank you for sharing that because I hate the dentist. (laughs) So I'm just, I'm sitting there, I'm standing here right now thinking about being in the chair and that sting of the unexpected drill that was supposed to be numb, but it wasn't. And now you're hurting. And that is just such a great uh, picture of what it is to, you know, know that, uh, hey, at the end of this session, I'm going to have a crown on my tooth and I'll be able to chew food normally. You know, that's a hope. <laughs> and so obviously... Yeah, it... yeah, my, my, my daughter has found a dentist uh, down where she is in, in Alabama where they, they actually give you a massage after the dentist. Oh, my word. And I thought, yeah, that's the way to do it. <laughs> yeah, every dentist should, should do that. That is amazing because I also have neck problems. I need a dentist like that for sure. Thank. I'm going to look for one. Thank you for that. I might have to... I de- actually was... I'm to Alabama for that. Well, I was just in Alabama for the CCEF conference. Um, Yeah, yeah. it was a beautiful state. So I'd be willing to go back for some massage (laughs) with my dentistry. Absolutely. (laughs) Well, we've got time for one more question on the show today. So I want to invite you to do something that I ask every guest on the Hope and Help Project to do, which is to speak directly to the audience. There may be someone listening to this episode who senses that they are constantly engaged in a spiritual war, and they often feel like they're losing. Maybe they've listened to this conversation today, and they've recognize some helpful insights, but they aren't very optimistic about experiencing victory in their lives because the battle has already been so long and they find themselves really weary from it. What would you say to that person to give them the courage they need to come to Christ to receive strength and the armor necessary to fight well? Yeah, I I would encourage them actually to read the letters of John Newton. Remember the slave trader turned preacher who Mm -hmm. wrote Amazing Grace? Uh, he has some wonderful letters about the Christian life. And one of the things he points out is that uh, he divides the Christian life into three stages. And stage A, the kind of the, the baby Christian, uh, he marks out as a time when often God seems to be very active in our lives. God is uh, supporting us, sometimes giving us uh, victory over sins. And we feel it's always going to be that way. It's like Israel when they had just come out of Egypt and they'd seen the Red Sea part in front of them. And they were convinced that life was going to be you know, easy now. You know, God was going to solve all of their problems. And what he points out is that often as we mature in the Christian life, what God does is, is he steps back, just as he did for Israel as they got to the wilderness, to reveal to them more about themselves. Uh, things they couldn't handle when they were a baby Christian. Uh, but as they grow and become more mature, that's when they start to see more of the depth of their sin, to discover that the sin wasn't just a few bad habits that they had, but it's, it's deeply rooted in our hearts. And that's really true for all of us. The more we grow in the Christian faith, the more we become aware of the depth of the sin in our hearts. Certainly true for Paul. I mean, he describes, describes himself as the chief of sinners in one of the last of his letters, not the first. So Christian growth towards maturity often is becoming more and more aware of our sinfulness. And, and the way in which God shows us that is often by stepping back and, and turning us over to ourselves. But the remedy is not, we've, we, you know, maybe you've discovered by now, the remedy is not simply to try harder. The remedy is to look to Christ. Uh, he is the one who has conquered sin by uh, living the perfect life, first of all, that he now gives to us as those festival garments were given to Joshua the high priest. He gives us those festival garments. So he says, you are beloved and accepted for my sake with the Father. And that's what brings enables us to come to the Father just as we are with all of our sins, all of our problems. None of it's a surprise to him. He knows it all. And uh, he has uh, atoned for it all in Christ. He has provided us with perfect righteousness for it all in Christ. 
the very specific ways in which you have sinned, Christ has been righteous. And that's a, that's a remarkable thought to hold on to in your darkest hours. And this is not the end of the story. God is not going to leave you half done. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. When? On the day of Christ Jesus, not before. Uh, so that work of sanctification that is so slow and so frustrating will ultimately reach its, its climax and conclusion in Christ. Well, so many good encouragements there. Thank you so much for sharing them. I want to let the listener know that the Ian's book is called The Whole Armor of God, How Christ's Victory Strengthens Us for Spiritual Warfare. And we did not cover all of the different pieces of armor. There are more chapters that I mean, this book is just such an amazing tool and encouragement for those who are struggling uh, to understand even what spiritual warfare is, but how Christ strengthens us to face it. So I definitely would recommend it. And each chapter has some helpful reflection questions at the conclusion of it as well. So Ian, now if there's someone listening today who wants to get more acquainted with your personal ministry, where can they go to find you online? Yeah, you can find my uh, sermons at uh, the church's website, which is Christ ARP, Associate Reformed Presbyterian. So ChristARP.com. And uh, you can find my books at uh, WTSbooks.com or at Amazon. Well, very good. Well, thank you so much, Ian, again, for taking the time to talk about this topic today with us. I was really encouraged again, you know, I said by reading your book, it's it's one of my new favorites, and I hope that the audience will be blessed by checking it out as well. Um, so just thank you for taking the time out of your schedule to join us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Before we let you go, I'd like to remind you to visit ibcd.org forward slash hope and help. There you can check out the show notes from today's episode. If you enjoyed today's conversation, why not subscribe to the podcast? That way you'll be notified when new weekly episodes release. Also, please don't keep the Hope and Help podcast a secret. If you know someone who could be encouraged by listening to this episode, please do them a favor by sharing it. Thanks so much for listening to today's show. Be sure to join us next time on the Hope and Help podcast.